0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. This is theoretically a monthly uh, bonus podcast where we talk about a notable or famous chess book. In this case, it's been a bit more than two months before we've done uh, a recap, but we have an excellent excuse. Uh, We're doing two books this month, and they're two epic books. Uh, They are both about this famous Candidates Tournament, Zurich 1953. Those of you who are regular listeners probably are familiar with these books and definitely have likely heard them recommended here on this podcast. So we figured it was time to dig in. And joining me for this discussion is a longtime friend of the pod, impressive guy, Fide Master, USCF 2400, Blitz rating of 2600 uh, on chess.com. He's been the Massachusetts State Chess Champion. He's a former poker pro. He's now a data scientist. He consults for Chessable. He's writing a must-read chess newsletter called Zwischenzug. So we'll put the link for you to sign up to his Substack, which I know some of you already are, but all of you should be signed up for it. And he's coming soon to the new project, How to Chess, talking about Uh, analytics and chess so uh, listeners can keep an eye out for that as well so without further ado let's welcome our guest co-host Nate Solon what's happening Nate
2: Uh, not too much really excited to be here longtime listener of the pod so feels feels good to be on this side of the microphone
0: Yeah. Happy to have you. I feel like you kind of, I feel a little guilty. I have to say, Nate, you innocently signed up for this project. And it turns out it's (laughs) like, we're basically doing a dissertation to discuss these, uh, these two Zurich 1953 books.
2: Well, I, I really did it to myself. I was like, you know, I think I suggested Zurich, the, the Bronstein book initially. And I was like, yeah, why not do the, the book too? And then, and then people on Twitter chimed in to inform us that there's actually like at least two other books um, on this tournament too, but but fortunately we kept it to two. Just yeah, two, two more, was plenty. more
0: more than two other books, and we're not even going to try to name them all. I don't want to anger any chess historians. Um, but one notable book that we will not be discussing is uh, Max Euwe, the Dutch World Champion. I've been practicing saying his name. Um, he wrote uh, in Dutch a, a notable Zurich 1953. Uh, book, which I don't believe has been translated to English, but even if it has, two these two books is plenty. Um, and the two <laughs> books we'll be discussing, of course, is the legendary book uh, in name by David Bronstein, of course, one of the strongest players ever to not be world champion. Um, he had some help with that book, as we'll discuss um, in due time. But legendary book, you've probably heard it recommended on this podcast like numerous times. I started reviewing the notes of people who recommended it. And we had uh, Danya Robert Hess, Robert Hungoski, adult improver Andres Krizdra, legendary trainer RB Ramesh. And I'm sure there's some that I missed. And obviously just in general chess conversations, you'll hear it recommended. So for those of you who've read it, we'll help you with a few reminisces. And those of you who haven't, we'll give you our scouting report. And then there's the slightly lesser known, but also excellent book by Neidorf. Um Nate, what, what do our listeners need to know about Nidor? I suspect some know a few things already, but.
2: Well, yeah, also extremely strong player. Um, one of the, the strongest players in the world, obviously. One of the most famous and best openings out there, the Nidor Sicilian is named after him. Um, yeah, Ar- Argentinian player, by, by all accounts, quite a character. Known, known for walking around during his game and talking to random spectators. So, uh, yeah, th- incredible player and, and big personality as well.
0: Yeah, as, as we'll be discussing more, sort of legendary raconteur and, uh, player, author, successful businessman. So uh, we'll, we'll get into all of that uh, in due time. A little bit more about the Bronstein Zurich book, which if you hear a book recommended and someone says, oh, you have to read Zurich 1953 and they don't specify the author, they're probably referring to the Bronstein book. So Bronstein book uh, published in English in 1956, translated by Jim Marfia. There've been countless new editions and revisions. Um, It's now available on Kindle and still in print on paper. I'm not aware of any eBooks, anything like Forward Chess or any of the publisher's apps. I don't believe that it's available in that format, but lots of ways to read this classic book. Um, As for the Nidorf. Uh, Zurich book. It was published in Spanish in 1953 and was only translated to English in more recent years. Translated by uh, Taylor Kingston, well known uh, chess historian. And it seems like he did a great job on it. The book is very readable. Um, even now, even though the book hasn't been out that long in English, uh, the hard copy is hard to find. But for 10 bucks, you can get the book on Kindle, which is what I did. And I believe what you did too, right, Nate?
2: Yeah, I've been l- lately, I've been into Hard copy books whenever possible, but um all the copies on Amazon of the, the Nidorf book were like six hundred bucks plus. So uh yeah, I settled for the the Kindle version in this case.
0: Yeah, that's a bit a bit rich for a book that's less than 10 years old. Um definitely probably not necessary. And maybe they'll print another copy at some point. Um I think the copies that were in print, the initial printing, there were a few like Typographic errors and stuff, but I think that that's been fixed in the Kindle. I didn't notice any in in my reading. A um, couple other notable things about the Nydorf Zurich book um, it's got a preface by Yuri, by Yuri Averbach, of course, the oldest living grandmaster, 99 years of age. And as we record this, there's been like a bit of sort of breaking news. He actually was hospitalized for COVID. Um, and obviously, at his age, that's uh, a bit concerning, but I saw a headline yesterday, we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, June 30th, that he's actually been released from the hospital, so it's it's a developing story, obviously, but glad to see that that he's being, been released to to live at home, and uh, amazing uh, longevity from that legendary grandmaster who participated in the tournament and wrote a great intro, and the foreword is by Andy Soltis, which uh, we might as well spoil for you guys, we have a special surprise coming, Um, we Andy does a little cameo in this podcast. We had about a 20-minute conversation um, with Andy. Um, he's, he wrote, again, a great forward to the book, but he also sort of uh, waxed nostalgic and shared some of his wisdom um, about that. So without spoiling too much of what Andy says, and Nate was on the call as well. Nate, uh, a- anything to say about uh, our conversation with Andy? Just it was it
2: was cool to get to talk to someone who's, depth of knowledge about this is is so deep because i believe he, he's written multiple books uh not just about zurich but about the era the players so um you know i've, I've read the books well at least the bronstein book a, a few times now so so i know the games but uh you know he he's really a, a treasure trove of knowledge about the entire era and and all the uh players involved
0: yeah, definitely an honor to get to talk to him, and like Nate said, I mean, he wrote a book on Soviet chess history, and as he mentions at the end of the interview that you guys will hear, he has another related book coming out, um, so definitely something to look forward to both in this podcast and to look forward to uh, his his book in life. Um, so we already mentioned a bit about Bronstein. Um, uh, you know, a lot of you longtime chess fans will have heard of him, but Couple other things to note about him. He was a very dynamic player, um, incredibly strong. Um Weinstein, who is his uncredited co-author slash ghostwriter, slash uh, contributor, as we'll be getting into, um, said about Bronstein uh Bronstein's uh tactical skills. He said the depth of a Bronstein combination is like an iceberg hidden nine tenths underwater. And that is actually a quote from the aforementioned Andy Soltis' Andy Soltis's Soviet chess. And just to share a bit more about Bronstein, uh, he was number one in the world in 1950 for 19 months, according to Jeff Sonas's chess metrics, number 25 all-time in the excellent Chess 24 series, the top 50 players of all time by friend of the pod uh Jan Gustav Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson and of legendary second of Magnus Carlsen Grandmaster Peter Hein Nielsen um he of course famously came within inches of beating Botvinnik in 1951 to become world champion he drew the match um and the tie went to the champion so he did not win the title and he was ahead in the match um and he and According to uh Jenna Sasanko, another legendary grandmaster and author, he kind of never recovered from that as he discusses in the book The Rise and Fall of David Bronstein. Um and we'll be talking more about some stuff from that book later. Um and yeah, there's just should we get into the ghostwriting thing, Nate? Is it time? <laughs> we we can, yeah. Um,
2: but just to, you know, to touch on Nidor, or or excuse me, Bronstein a little bit. Um you know, I think one of the things that really fascinates me about the book is like like you said, he's a really creative player and he he's that type of creative inventive player, like almost like a a Joe Bava or a Report or you know, Dubov today. Um but like you know, knocking on the door of number one in the world and kind of at the forefront of this whole school of of, of Soviet chess. So I think that's that's one of the things that's fascinating about that about it to have someone who's that creative and inventive, who's one of the best players in the world as well, and and is the author of the book, or or I guess yeah. it, as we're about to get into is the author of maybe part of the book or with with a co writer, but um, you do get a lot of interesting insights in the book.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess we'll save it for later. Let's give the books their respect. And then there's two sort of big controversies about the Zurich uh, books. Number one being this recent revelation from Genesis Sasanko that uh, he said that Weinstein did the majority of the writing. We'll go over the exact wording and sort of how we parse it later. And number two, there are these allegations of match fixing by the sort of Soviet regime that uh, now in some people's minds sort of cast a pall over the chess. Um, but you know, the books stand alone. Neither of the books obviously allude to these things. Again, Bronstein is the only credited author in the book and there's maybe very vague allusions to the cheating stuff, but really not much in there at all. So I think it's probably better to talk about the books first and, uh, and then get into these allegations. Now, a bit more about Weinstein, since he definitely helped with the book. Um, he was a longtime friend of Bronstein. He he wrote many books on his own. Um, he also like uh, had some sort of KGB affiliation, although also it's not clear what this, the 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 status of their relationship was at the time of the tournament. He was not there with Bronstein at the time of the tournament. Um, A lot of the players had super strong seconds and the field of this tournament was just like immensely strong. Um, There were 15 participants um, and out of the top 15 in the world, it, it included the number two through 15 uh of course Botvinnik, the world champion since it was a candidates tournament was not in it and then averbach who was like number 21 or something was the only like not just running down the list of the strongest players in the world uh not the only player who was not in it and as we'll be talking about with both with uh grandmaster andy soltis and here with nate um i think the reason the book is famous is the games i mean the games, there's just so many bangers, so many just amazing games. Um, if you've like, seen some famous games from chess history and you don't know where they came from, like there's a very good chance it was uh, from Zurich 1953 and you might not have even realized it. Um, there's like the Petrosian Rookie 6 famous exchange sacrifice, this crazy defense from Max Uwe. Um, and ju- just so much more i mean nate again we're going to get into andy's andy's uh segment in a minute but do you agree that that's what differentiates these books if anything yeah i think that the combination of the so
2: many strong players gathered in one tournament which was not an everyday occurrence in those days uh you know you couldn't just get everyone on their computer and and have an online tournament with a bunch of strong players. You had to get everyone together and it was, it was hard to choose a venue. It was hard to get all the players to come. And then, like you said, the, the super strong games. And also I think really rich in ideas, like it seemed to be an era where the, the state of the art of chess was, was advancing rapidly. There was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of, you know especially in the soviet school um very strong players working hard together and testing different ideas you know study studying and training together but then competing against each other at the same time so it seemed like a, a moment where people were pushing the frontiers of chess and uh it was just sort of an exciting moment in chess history
0: yeah for sure that definitely comes across in the games with lots of new lots of new opening ideas and and yeah, just sparkling play in between all the draws. Um, so just to give you guys the uh, a little more historical context, again, I think some of you will know this stuff, but uh, 30 rounds, so 210 games, which is why this has been such an epic project uh, for Nate and I. The participants were Samuel Wyshevsky, Paul Keres, David Bronstein, Tigran Petrosian, F.M. Geller. Alexander Kratov, Mark Timonov, Yuri Averbach, Isaac Boleslavsky, Laszlo Sabo, um, Svetostar Gligorich, Max Uwe, (laughs) Gideon Stahlberg, and, of course, Miguel Nydorf. Amazing games throughout. And there were tons of strong seconds in attendance. This is a quote from the Nydorf book. All the grandmasters participating except Rashevsky and Bronstein had their seconds, whose principal job consisted consisted of analysis of adjourned games. Of course, those of you newer to chess saw the adjourned games, hopefully in Queen's Gambit, um, where, you know, this is in the pre-computer age. So having a strong player there with you to help you study when the position gets postponed is obviously super helpful. Um, acting as Gligorich's second was Dr. Trifunovic for Taimanov, Floor, Julio Bobachan for Nydorf, who also uh, Bobachan, Bobachan may have helped with... Uh, Help Nidorf with the book uh, as well. Uh, Lilienthal for Petrosian, Bielin for Averbach, Vanderberg for Uwe, um, Skold for Stahlberg, Florian for Sasbo, Sokolsky for Boles- Boleslavsky, Moiseev for, for Kotov, Bandarevsky for Geller, Samajin for Smislov, and Toulouse for Kiris. So that's just a small side note. I mean, some of those names might be familiar to you all, and, so- and some won't, but they're there weren't that many grandmasters in the world at that time. And in addition to the participants to have like another, like seven or eight on hand is, is just crazy. And uh, Rashevsky and Bronstein both had decent showings uh, and Ryshevsky for Ryshevsky to be battling for the lead without a second is definitely a a testament to his skill. Um, So anything else, Nate, before we get to uh, Andy's interview, Andy, of course, We talk about a lot of topics, and some of it will tease topics that Nate and I are going to flesh out later, but um, the principal question that we discuss with Andy is, what makes this tournament special? Um, Anything to add before we hop into that, Nate? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting that that Reshebski and Bronstein didn't have seconds because
2: they did both somewhat collapse towards the end of the tournament. So I guess you you wonder a little bit if the, the fatigue, because this was, apart from being the super strong tournament it was a, a grueling tournament because the field was large and it was a double round robin so it's just the players had to play an enormous amount of chess so um stamina was a huge factor in this tournament as well um and that was you know in, in i think in both of the books that S- smyslov of course was was the ultimately the winner of the tournament and the challenger for the world champion um and and they attribute that partly just to his He was in good physical shape and he was um, able to to continue at a relatively high level to to the end of the tournament.
0: Yeah, although funny enough, uh, it's hard not to get into the the sort of um, the treachery in Zurich that um, so that we'll be discussing because they one of the alleged reasons for the match fixing that we're going to discuss is that Smyslov maybe was running out of energy. But anyway, we'll get to that in due time, but but Nate raises an important point. I mean, just imagine like uh eight weeks, two locations. And by the way, sometime you'll hear this tournament referred to as Zurich Newhausen because it actually started in this Swiss resort town called Newhausen. Um and only later moved to Zurich um, because the tournament was just so long. And obviously, like something like the World Championship these days is over in less than a month. So to have the candidates take Two months is just just boggles the mind. Um, anyway, without further ado, we're gonna uh, we're gonna drop in the interview that we already played with uh, legendary grandmaster Andy Soltis. Obviously, he has a lot of great insights. So we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Then you'll hear the interview with Andy. Then you'll hear some more. Uh, ads from our sponsors, and then boom, we will be back. So without further ado, here is Nate and I's conversation with uh, Grandmaster Andy Soltis. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which utilizes space repetition to quiz you and make sure that you remember whatever tactical patterns or opening sequences that you're working on. They have a huge catalog of great books from top flight authors both for purchase and if you check for their short and sweet courses you can find tons of free content speaking of free content chessable of course has also recently launched an adult improvement focused chess podcast called how to chess with yours truly hosting it check for it on chessable's youtube channel and you can also subscribe on the podcast platforms
1: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win
0: So Nate Solon and I are here and we are joined by the legendary author, Grandmaster, and multiple time past and future guest of Perpetual Chess. Of course, this gentleman wrote the foreword to the English version of the Neidorf uh, Zurich 1953 book. So definitely an honor to have him reflect on these books a little bit. Let's welcome Grandmaster Andy Soltis. Thank you for popping in, Andy. Glad to be here. So Nate, where should we begin? What do you think?
2: Well, I think um, we wanted to, to dig into the history, right? So, the the historical context um, around around the Zurich tournament, and then we'd also, I you know, I've just been reading Andy's articles on possible sort of intrigue and and collusion at the tournament as well yeah
0: we we'll, we should definitely get to that although we could talk about that for hours but Andy why don't we begin sort of as Nate says alluding to the history could could you give us a little context of why you think this tournament and these two books are so famous
3: well um one thing that you can point out is that the games are just of such a high quality there was a tournament just a couple of weeks ago uh, in this grand chess tour, and the games were played in Bucharest. It was a classical tournament there 's not a single game in that tournament that would be rated among the top thirty in the Zurich tournament. Um, the Zurich tournament just had you know phenomenal games um, you know look at anybody 's game collection irva 's best games, Nidorf's best games Taimanov's best games they all you know two or three games from those. Books we will find in coming from Zurich, uh, 1953. The second thing is, um, these two authors were doing uh, basically a a labor of love. Um, I don't think Neidorf wrote anything that was nearly as good as this, and and I think it's also true of of Bronstein. Bronstein came home from uh, the tournament and to to Moscow. He got together with his old uh, buddy, Boris Weinstein, who was actually a a former um, colonel in the secret police. He was really a dreaded character. And um, the first thing that that, um, uh, Weinstein asked him was, well, you know, why don't you write a book about this? And he did. And it became the the biggest selling tournament book in history. I mean, it sold 300,000 copies in the various Russian editions. You know, tournament books typically sell about a thousand copies. You know, something like that. So, and then you have Nidov, and I, I don't know what his his um, working conditions were like, but I think he got you know carte blanche from his publisher. He had the support of the government. What, what isn't really well known is that uh, when this came out in Spanish, the NIDAR version, uh, it was two volumes. And the introduction, uh, it was the dedication page. He dedicated the book to El Presidente, Juan Peron, best known today as, you know, that guy who married Evita. Okay. <laughs> so he, he got uh, some support in doing this. Um, but So you have the combination of two very entertaining writers doing their best and just a marvelous collection of games and it was a big deal because in those days there was usually one big tournament a year i mean we nowadays we have hundreds um, and uh one thing you can you know put into the historical context they didn't have international tournaments the way we do now where uh anybody can organize uh something big by inviting the, the 10 best players in the world People just didn't do that during the Cold War. In fact, tournaments were always held, if on a really high level, um, in neutral locations like Zurich or Helsinki or Amsterdam. That's where all of the big tournaments uh, during the the early 50s were held because they simply couldn't get agreement. You couldn't have a tournament in New York and get the top players from the Eastern Bloc. They certainly weren't going to have that. In Moscow during the days of Stalin, so it was uh, an extraordinary situation there.
0: Yeah, I, that was what what struck me because, especially with the Bronstein book, and you mentioned this in the foreword that the Nidorf book may be better. And Nate and I are going to talk more about the com- comparing the books um, uh, uh, later in the podcast, but. Um it it struck me that it, it can't really be the prose that makes this book so famous. Um so I agree with you that uh, that it's uh, it's it's the games and the games really do sparkle. There's so many. Um although being that this is audio only, Nate and I have resolved not to uh, not to spout variations or talk about specific moves.
2: We're not we're not gonna be variations monitors, as <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> I think that's what Bronstein yeah, said. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, to to Andy's point about the the quality of the games, I think. You know i don't I don't know how they would stack up in terms of like accuracy according to the engine but um they're really rich in ideas uh, at, like in coming back to this um this book after not having read it for a while, mm-hmm. my memory was that it was sort of this this classical era where where things had you know ideas had crystallized and and coming back to it that was partly true but not really like you know they certainly ideas had, had advanced to a certain level, but it also struck me re- watching the games that a lot of experimentation and invention was happening. To, you know, People were, were trying things and innovating a lot in this tournament as well.
3: Yeah, to that point, a uh, good example would be uh, Taimanov's system in the uh, King's Indian Defense is white, which I think they call it the classical variation nowadays. This system, just playing knight f3 and bishop to e2 and playing d5 at, at the, the key point, that was almost new at those days. Kaimanov uh, had introduced a system of doing that uh, only uh, a year or so earlier in a Soviet championship and, and won a lot of games. But then, you know, sometime later, very in this like a year, information traveled so slowly that um, Fedor gligorich came up with uh, a response he was going to play in a tournament in Mardel Plata just before a round he had an hour to kill he came up with something of a defense for black it's now called the Mar mardel plata variation yeah he didn't you know, like he didn't have a computer and but that information didn't travel well so when Nydorf uses the mardel plata variation in this tournament in like one of the early rounds it it shocks his opponent and he and wins, wins a wonderful game um again they yeah they were we're coming up with these ideas in in the king's indian of course and the nimzo indian uh there are very few e4 games in this this tournament uh, uh but uh some of them some of the uh ideas have stood up uh, pretty well and uh <laughs> strangely enough you know, you're not going to find very many um opening variations that are known as the zurich variation or the zurich defense although they date from, from this, uh, uh great meeting of the minds.
2: Yeah, it was interesting to see, you can kind of see the, the theory of the, the Mardel Plata variation developing in real time, which is, I, I was surprised that it was, it was so new and trendy in this tournament because these days that's probably like the most iconic variation of the, the King's Indian defense. I don't, I don't know if it's the most common, but it's, that type of play with, with white pushing the pawns on the queen side and black going for the pawn storm on the king side, that's what you think of when you think of the king's Indian defense. But in that tournament, it was, it was fairly new. And, and it seemed like the, the evaluation of those types of positions was people, you know, there was a lot of disagreement on, is it, is it playable for black? Is it actually better for black? Um, they were still mm-hmm. figuring out those positions.
3: Sure, but except the difference is that nowadays the games start around move twenty five in that variation. At Zurich they started around move twelve. That's when they the players were thinking on their own.
0: Yeah. And um and the Kings Indian generally, I'm sure Nate and I will be expounding on this more at another point, but there's just so many Kings Indians in in the book. And th- uh I one of the points I realized I think for for players below 1800 i actually don't think this book is going to be like that instructive between the sort of sparse um annotations and the the level of play and the outdatedness of the openings i think is a bad combination it doesn't it doesn't take away the historical context and the the fact that just reading the books um to appreciate is uh you know can be greatly enjoyable but i think for strictly instructive value it's maybe not not great for players that level but i do think there might be a notable exception with the king's indian because there are so many games um but andy we've we've only got you for a bit of time and we've got um a lot of, a lot of topics to talk about now another thing that nate and i will probably talk about more when you're offline and uh try not to to slander you is uh the the articles you wrote for a chess cafe the the treachery in zurich parts one and parts two um and that's another interesting thing about this tournament of course is all the sort of intrigue about, you know, these days you have Jenna Sosanko saying that Weinstein maybe wrote the majority of Bronstein's book, and then you have the separate thread about the match fixing as, as you've written. So, I mean, there's so much that could be said about it, Andy, but like when you think about the books and the tournament, how, like how soon does your mind go to, the, to those allegations uh, by Bronstein?
3: Hmm, good question. Um, I don't know. It, it's really hard because, um, well, yeah, when when the book when uh, Bronstein's uh, charges came out, which he waited until I think in 2011, or 2001 rather. Um, Victor Korchnoi's reaction was, um, if you really hated this tournament, why did you write such a beautiful book? And Smyslov's reaction uh, was. Um, Davy, he called him Davy all the time. Davy, why are you spoiling such a good tournament? Um, I don't think it spoils it. I think it adds a level of, of uh, interest that uh, doesn't exist with other tournaments. Um, Smyslov's response, by the way, it really wasn't very much. He didn't say uh, he didn't defend himself. Basically, he just said, uh, "Well, you know, a lot of bad things happened, and uh, by other people and." Bronstein shouldn't be so proud of the way that he won the previous candidates tournament, where there was probably even more cheating, um, and he, he didn't really uh, come up with uh, any. But but you know. Um, but to be sorry, just to that, happen
0: for a second, Andy. But to be clear, there there were no allegations of impropriety by Smyslov, right? It was more just like the the puppet masters.
3: Well, yeah, but the implications—he knew what was going on. Um, he he had a sense that uh, there's this one point when uh, there all, all of the uh, the puppet masters are meeting with Bronstein and and Smyslov, and uh, uh, Bronstein supposedly is having doubts about uh, cooperating and drawing with Smyslov, and Smyslov says, uh, well yeah but you know Karas uh, played to win he refused and Karas had been in a similar situation where they you know told Karras that he had to draw with the white pieces against Smyslov. And Karras refused, and he tried to win, and he lost. And the game is remembered as one of Smyslov's greatest victories. Uh, So I think he sort of like had a nodding idea of what what was going on. Maybe not, you know, the the other players in the tournament uh, sort of gave the same indication. They knew something might be going on. Uh, I asked Yuri Afferbach uh, when the Bronstein article came out I, he, uh, or Yuri was uh, playing uh, no, was actually attending a uh, uh, chess collectors International convention in Philadelphia. Um, he was giving a lecture, and I asked him afterwards uh, like, w- what do you think about bronstein 's article and he said, you know, uh, well, I, Bronstein has a credibility problem and, you know, there may have been some over eager, overzealous KGB involvement there. Uh, but I, he said, I didn't know anything about this going on. And Mark wrote in his wrote in his memoirs, uh, well, you know, there was this general sense that under no circumstances could Ryshevsky be allowed to win the mm-hmm. tournament. Um, and Taimanov wrote this in a book that, that hasn't been translated yet. It's uh, His memoir is called, uh, in Russian, it's like uh, Remembering the Most. Um, but he, one thing that he, he said that, that uh, struck me in the book, uh, Taimanov said that um, uh, and there's one key game where um, when Bronstein has played Geller, and Geller has sort of like double-crossed him by instead of throwing the game to him, he's beaten him. And Taimanov said that he saw uh, Bronstein that night, and uh, Bronstein was in terrible condition. He was he was crying. He was drunk. He was the most distraught that Taimanov had ever seen him. And that sort of confirmed in my mind that you know this is a legitimate you know story by Bronstein. Bronstein's just not making stuff up. Um, maybe he's got maybe he's embellishing as as uh Yuri uh, Alterbach said uh maybe you know he's he's giving a lot more detail you know you'd, he came up with quotes that had happened 50 years before and you know it's i always have doubts about when when you know you people reconstruct events that were that distant in the past but on the whole i would have to trust uh Bronstein's account over Smislov's simply because Smislov had nothing to say And, um, nobody else can uh, dispute it at this point. That was my impression after
2: reading, you know, reading your, your articles and, and a little bit of the other sources was it's hard to, it's really hard to know the extent or the effectiveness of, um, the machinations, but, but it certainly seemed like there was something going on.
3: Yeah. I, there's another footnote there, um, Kaimanov said, you know, we were used to this type of stuff. He didn't say specifically what stuff. But he said, you know, everybody who played in the candidates tournament, all the Soviet players, had already played in the interzonal a year before in, in, in Stockholm. And there we were all told, you know, unofficially, but we were all told, you cannot try to beat Alexander Katov. And Kautov had no business being in that interzonal. He had to—he had cheated to get into it. You know, he—he he got his uh, friends, his fellow comrades in the in the Communist Party to push somebody else out of the way, a guy named Lev Aranen, so that Kautov could play in it. And so the other uh, Soviet players all drew with Kautov very quickly. Kautov won the tournament. In fact, he won it walking away. It was the greatest achievement of his career. And it, it like annoyed Bobby Fischer 10 years later because there was another interzonal also in Stockholm, and he met Cutoff, and Fischer was easily winning the tournament, and he told Cutoff, I have to win this tournament by the bigger margin than you want it. What did you want it? With, like two and a half points? And Cutoff said, well, something like that. And Fischer said, okay, it has to be three I think Fisher fell short. So uh, there was an understanding, you know, that there's some strange business going on. And I think this really began around that period because I don't think, well, the Soviets didn't play that often abroad before 1952-53. So um, the political involvement, uh, I think, began around that time yeah f-
0: fascinating stuff and Andy, of course, is the author of soviet chess uh, nineteen seventy one to nineteen ninety one a great uh historical compendium so um, knows of what he speaks um so andy uh, and again we could we could talk about this uh intrigue for first hours, but to me, the bottom line is, as you guys have alluded to, there's a lot of smoke, but at the same time we'll never know so so there's only there's only so much that can be said um now andy how would how do you compare this era of Soviet chess to to chess in in Russia today and the sort of modern chess scene?
3: Well, uh, I I think the quality of, of play, of course, is higher because of uh, well the intensity of the young kids, the help of the computers right now. You know, they're the Russian um, establishment, so to speak, is coming around in support of. Um, Their best players. You can see this in the the preparations for the next World Championship match. Yan uh, uh, Jan Nepomnyashy. That's how you pronounce it. Jan Nepomnyashy. Everyone oh. calls him Nepo because they can't pronounce they can't pronounce it otherwise. Okay, I'm taking notes here. He's getting you know. No, that, that's scary
2: because of... now w- when I screw it up later, um, you know I'll really have no excuse. <laughs>
3: right. Well, they're making it harder. I just call him Nepo, and and the funny thing about his is like his name is sort of like a Russian word meaning forgetful. Um, (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, But anyway, he's got all sorts of corporate support and uh, more or less the support of um, friends in the government. So uh, this is sort of like an interesting uh, development. I mean, I don't think there was that kind of support for uh, Sergei Kayakin when he played uh, Magnus uh, four years ago in New York. Um, I think this is a, a different, a different st- uh, level um, and uh, it 's going to lead to a uh, very interesting match um, you know he, there's nothing he 's not going to be short on any uh, theoretical support you know the, His colleagues uh, in the grandmaster ranks are going to be devoting a lot of it, a lot of uh, input, um, like in the days when uh, everyone had to give their best ideas to Karpoff. Uh, this uh, this will not this is not going to be you know one person Magnus versus one person Jan. It's going to be team Nepanyashi versus uh, team Carlson. And uh, guess who has a bigger team?
0: Yeah, I mean Carlson is not lacking for resources these days. But yeah, it's tough to uh, <laughs> tough to compete with uh, the Russian government if they're and and as you say, corporate support as well.
3: hmm And before we leave, I want to make one of plug. course. I have a book, by the way, coming out. It's called Smyslov, Bronstein, Geller, Taimanov, and Averbach, a chess bi- multi-biography with 220 games. And, there, of course, all five of these guys played in Zurich. So if you really want to, you know, get some footnotes to uh, the tournament, you can. this book will be out. It's a McFarland book. It'll be out in uh, a month or two. I think I, I have an advanced copy uh, right now. But... It, uh, it's beginning to look very good.
0: Excellent. And Andy, of course, I would be happy to have you on to d- discuss that bro- properly um, in, in a few months' time. Give me some time to read it. I have to recover from this project, but uh, but, that would, <laughs> but that would be an honor. So, so um, thank you so much for, for popping in, Andy.
3: Okay. Anytime. Okay. Great to,
2: I don't know, e-meet you, whatever you want to say, but great to, great to talk with you and get, get some of your insight
0: okay thanks so much andy and uh nate uh to be continued (laughs) absolutely very good take it easy then perpetual chess is brought to you in part by aimchess.com if you haven't checked out aimchess.com by now what are you waiting for what aim chess does is it collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you actionable advice of how to improve your game it might be to work on a specific opening or to get better at end games, or improve your time management, or whatever it may be. And then it gives you related puzzles to help you improve that specific skill. They are constantly improving the site. They recently added blindfold tactics, time management training, common checkmate patterns. So there's so much to do there. If you decide to subscribe, be sure to use the promo code PERPETUAL30. Details are in the show notes for aimchest.com. That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. DTW, void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus
0: and we are back, and obviously an honor and a pleasure to talk to Grandmaster Saltis. Uh Nate, any any reflections on uh, that conversation? Yeah, just, just really interesting to
2: get the the perspective of someone who's who's gone so so deeply into it. Um I guess my my takeaway after after reading the various sources and and talking with GM Soltis was there was definitely some funny business going on, but, um, it's, it's really hard to say how extensive or effective it was. And, um, you know, it seemed like for a lot of the grandmasters, it's sort of, they would rather stick to the chess and there were, there were these guys around who who were trying to influence the tournament, but, um, maybe it was somewhat of a distraction uh maybe it was more than that it's hard to say at this point
0: yeah and i I think we should dig into that deeper i still feel like we should give the books as they because again this stuff is not in the books you know which is funny because now i feel like when you talk about the book it's like it's what you want to talk about what i want to talk about but I feel like we should give the books their airing, and then we'll come back to what Andy said. But I did enjoy hearing his story about meeting Grandmaster Yuri Averbach, because I'd read uh, an old interview on Chess Cafe by uh, the aforementioned Taylor Kingston, uh, translator of the Neidorf, uh Zurich book, and Averbach was pretty dismissive of uh, Bronstein's allegations. But Andy in is I don't know if dismissive is the right word, but he still gives them. A lot of weight, but again, we'll come back to this later and give it a full airing um, because I also just think andy's observation about like it's the chess like the reason these these books are so famous is the chess, and there's different strengths and different weaknesses of both the Bronstein and the Nidorf book, but the bottom line is the games are so amazing that if you go through them you'll benefit from from each, although as we'll also get to um I'm not going to be giving like a full-throated unequivocal recommendation of these books for like all chess fans there'll be some some caveats for sure but but Nate maybe a good place to go next is like for for which chess fans are these books most beneficial mm, yeah no great good question I think I would say um
2: you know the books are somewhat different like the the Neidorf book is is longer. The, the comments are more extensive. Um, Bronstein sort of just pops in at interesting moments, but, but neither book holds your hand that much. So I would say, you know, probably 1600 plus, it's hard to say an exact rating, but definitely not, you know, really new beginners to chess, because I think these books, you sort of have to, to some extent, bring your own some of your own curiosity some of your own knowledge to get the most out of them um so i would say you know around 1600 but but all the way up as far as you want to go if you haven't read these books because i think that to me the like the the real reason to read these is like the idea of chess culture which, which people talk about which which i take to mean sort of a knowledge of chess history, classic games, as well as typical structures and plans. And this is, this is just a collection of games that's so iconic, and I think forms the basis of a lot of strong players' understanding of chess. So just absorbing and internalizing the, the patterns and plans and maneuvers in these games uh, is really helpful for developing that chess culture
0: yeah i agree i mean i i definitely agree 1600 plus maybe even 1800 plus depending on your tolerance for uh ambiguity because there's definitely going to be some ambiguity if you go through the annotations of uh this game uh, friend of the pod uh christoph Zelecki, aka chess explained he has a nice youtube video where he kind of just goes through a few of the games and he points out some flaws in the analysis Um, I think of the Bronstein book, but then and that's without an engine. He just noticed some things without an engine. And I agree that the thing about Bronstein's observations in the book is they're extremely incisive. They're just they're so to the point about the game that like when when he pops into a game and, and gives you a nugget, it's it's incredibly instructive, but they're sparse so it's just not that much and there's so many games so you're just going through move after move and you're occasionally getting an explanation and when you get an explanation it's amazing but they're not that frequent um and sometimes he doesn't highlight key moments and stuff like that so um i read the review of i've read this many times uh chess life magazine, uh, editor, I mean, not editor book reviewer. I am John Watson, of course, a friend of the podcast. He did a great interview way back in the annals, if anyone wants to go back and find it. Um, but obviously, uh, I am Watson's uh, knowledge of chess history is, uh, unquestionable. The author of secrets of modern chess strategy. So he wrote a review comparing the two books. Um, and in John Watson's review, he he pointed out that it might be that a lot of people sort of name these books as their favorites just because there weren't that many books uh, when they were kids, you know. And then that their coach recommends the book, and from there it just sort of gets passed on. Now, a couple notes of comparison about the Nydorf book is it does provide better context. So the Bronstein book, I can totally see someone hearing it recommended on this podcast getting super excited. Um, you know, opening the book for the first time. And it's basically, they just drop you right into the first round. And there's very little context given about sort of the standings in the round. As we've said, the annotations are sparse, amazing, but sparse. The games are amazing, but there's not that much explanation. The Nidorf book, as Nate said, the explanations are maybe there's moderately more annotation. Maybe they're not as sharp. But what they do do in the Nidorf book is they give you bios of the players. They give you a little bit more context. You know, Nidorf shares a few memories. It has the nice uh, preface by Averbach and the foreword by Nidorf. So if you're more of a chess culture enthusiast and you're not reading it like with the sole goal of getting better at chess, then I think there's something to be said for the Nidorf book. But if you're... Goal is chess improvement, then A, I'm not sure these are the best books, honestly, in this day and age. Um, and B, maybe go with the Bronstein books. I mean, that's a bit of a hot take I just gave there. Although I will say in uh in the aforementioned chess twenty four, uh, top fifty players of all time, uh Peter Hein Nielsen basically said he didn't he's not a huge fan of uh of uh Zurich nineteen fifty three for all of its Ah, uh, fame. So, I feel like we might as well get into it now, Nate. What's your like overall impression if a, you know, 16 to 1800 player asks you for a book recommendation, are you going to recommend one of these books?
2: Yeah, I think I think I would, you know, just because the um the Bronstein book was such a touchstone for me, like that that's kind of why I picked it for this is that it was one of the most memorable books for for me learning chess as a kid. Um, I think because it it helped instill some kind of curiosity or love for the game um I will admit that you know I think a lot of people now you know adult improvers who don't have a lot of time are very focused understandably on um efficiency and and I will admit this is maybe not the most efficient book to improve your chess because it's a lot of games uh so I think this is like this is maybe not the book to put in the spreadsheet, this is like the book to sit down with it, with a glass of scotch, you know, and enjoy the game. Um, but I do think the sort of the love for chess and the curiosity that comes through, um, in Bronstein's annotations, as well as the games, um, it's sort of like a, a great way to build up your, your appreciation of chess culture and history. Uh, so, so, so if you, you know, one book to improve your rating the most in three months, probably not the optimal book, but, but a great book to sort of fuel your your love of chess and understanding of chess. I, I do think that they're really good.
0: Yeah. And it's there, it seems a bit sad to me to even have to say that, you know, I mean, obviously I would like to get better at chess. We all work to improve at chess, but like, this as you say it's a it's a historical touchstone in the canon the bronstein book especially just cuz the bronstein book whether deserved or not seems to have sort of a higher place on the pedestal in terms of reputation um but yeah i mean it's just the games are so incredible and that's the the main thing that makes that makes the book the the touchstone that it is and again we're talking about it, it was written in an era when you know, a lot of the games that people could get their hands on would be like unannotated in an informator. Uh, maybe not even that when it first was published. Maybe you wait for a chess magazine. So the things that we're describing as faults now, like, you know, pretty sparse annotations by Bronstein, um, were, wouldn't necessarily be considered faults back then. We're kind of spoiled for choice. And the other thing to emphasize with the Bronstein book in particular is just The annotations are sparse and of course there's going to be mistakes, but they're just, they're so incisive at times. I mean, it's kind of like Mm -hmm. the impression I get with the book is like, if two, you know, club level players are arguing about a position and you're arguing for hours looking at it or something. And then Bronstein just like walks in and like tells you the truth about a certain position. (laughs) It's sort of like that feeling over and over again. But then he leaves, you know, <laughs> so it's not like he stays and, an- and goes over the whole game with you. He just goes and goes over the, like, finer points of planning. Um, and it's amazing in that regard. The Nidorf book has more annotations. Um, but again, uh, maybe not quite as um, as precise. Uh, how do you compare the annotations, Nate?
2: Yeah, well, I think for, for me, I definitely am in the Bronstein camp of... I think like your your description is perfect. Of like, it's like you know he just sort of comes in and and gives the the final word on it. But I would say not only not only for a specific game, but maybe for a structure or an opening. And I feel yeah, I feel like that. there yeah, there's some moments in there where it's like, you know, for a structure or opening or even some sort of dynamic that are, can occur in any chess game. It's like I can just read one paragraph and it's like I have some insight that's going to serve me, you know, for my whole chess career.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. And, and again, we're there's so many landmark games, but we're resolved not to just sort of spout uh, be variations mongers, as you said, to Soltis. like we're not just going to spout moves. We're not even going to talk about the games in that much detail, but I did flag just one quote to sort of give you an idea of give listeners an idea of the sort of tone of Bronstein's writing. And then we'll also share kind of the opening paragraphs, but here's, here's one. Um, and again, I guess we should say Bronstein or Weinstein's writing. Um, He says the placement of White's pieces radiates a great deal of potential energy, which ought to be converted into kinetic. White must set his center pawns in motion, activating both his rooks and his deeply buried dark squared bishop. The most logical plan would seem to be the advance of the e-pawn, first to e4, then to e5 to drive Black's knight from f6 and lay the groundwork for a kingside attack. Black, in turn, must prevent the e-pawn's advance or counterattack the white pawn center, which will lose some of its solidity the moment the pawn advances from e3 to e4. In this game, Rashevsky combines both of Black's ideas to achieve a favorable disposition of his forces, while Neidorf does not put nearly enough vigor into the execution of his plan. Um, So that's Rashevsky Neidorf, obviously, yeah, and it's just like so concise about sort of the high level planning that's going on in the game. But again, I mean, if you pick up this book and you're like, Oh, the famous Zurich 1953, I can't read, wait to, to read this and get the full story. You don't get the full story. You're just thrust into the games, no player bios, you know, no, uh, round by round horse race of who's winning the tournament. And the night book does have that stuff. So, um, yeah. As long as you know what you're getting, there's like you say, if you're just going to fend for yourself and try to figure out a book, um, you know, the comments are high level and the games are amazing.
2: Yeah, I think um, there's this quote from from one of Bronstein's introductions that gets at that. Um, uh, where he said, um I felt that so so here's the quote I felt that the author's ideas and conclusions should form the basis of this book with the moves played in each game serving to annotate them as it were um so it's sort of in that sense it's not it's not really about the tournament it's the tournament is just sort of the canvas for Bronstein to express his ideas about chess which you know i feel like his ideas are incisive enough that i really enjoy that but if you're here for the the tournament itself you know the drama the competition the the sort of trappings and circumstances of the tournament like you said you you get very little of that it's really yeah. it's about the chess ideas almost exclusively
0: Yeah, he has a quote actually to that point, and this kind of rounds out what he writes in the very introductory paragraphs, which is, he says, books about chess tournaments belong to a special class of literature, which would seem at first blush to be rather restrictive of the author's creative possibilities, since he must write not on themes of his own choosing, but about chess material already created. But this is not quite true. The author is free to treat the games any way he wishes, to make generalizations, and to uncover the ideas and plans actually executed as well as those that could have occurred in the actual or some other games. Um, so yeah, exactly. And one other thing, um, I think uh, Andy Soltis might have alluded to this, but uh, anyone like trying to decide if they're going to buy the book should know that it's very sort of imbalanced in the opening that it covers. It's like 20% mm-hmm. of the games are E4 or something. So yeah, if you're D- thinking.
2: e 4 was, was very much in fashion
0: yeah, at that crazy. moment.
2: Most of the games started with D4.
0: Yeah, and then a few, like, other closed setups, but um, the E4 games are quite rare, which is unusual. Like, I feel like that was a rare moment, sort of. I mean, generally, in chess history, you're, you're, if anything, slightly more likely to see E4. Mm-hmm. But yeah. in this book, lots of Kings Indians and some Nimzos and, um, you know, some Queen's Gambit declines and so on, but not that much E4, which, again, if you're choosing the book, I mean, some people, I know people are drawn towards, like, their openings, even if you're willing to to sort through some others yeah. as well. But if you're an E4 player, it's uh, something to, to it just is, to be aware of. It, it is honestly a pretty big consideration because the
2: a big part of the case I'm making for the book is developing the understanding of these um, typical plans and structures. But clearly, that's going to be a lot more valuable if if it's the structures and openings that you actually play yourself. Uh, one one thing I did want to mention while while we're on this topic sort of going back to what you were saying about um, a lot of the games having sparse annotations and also what uh, GM Soltis said about, you know, this was a time where you couldn't just open up chess space, like ac- access to the games themselves was a big part of it. Uh, I do think this is a case where you could, you probably get like 80% of the value of this book from 20% of the games. Yeah. Um, and, and in that era, You know they had to include the the game store from all the games because that was that was like part of that was a big part of the value of the tournament book was just access to the the game stores. But these days, where you can easily get get access to the game stores, I think um, you know there's something you said for for sort of like a greatest hits, like the best games with the richest annotations. Maybe we can actually put together a list of like 10 or 20 games and just say like, you know, these are like the the highlights. I think you can, you can get a lot of a lot of the value, maybe not going through every single game.
0: Yeah, I actually had the same thought. And I agree, we could put together a list like that. And since you said it, and since I'm never actually going to do it, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, I'll even expound, someone could call the book like Zurich Remixed and just have like 20, 30 games uh, annotated, basically move by move. And, you know, with a little bit of context or some sort of, um, you know, some sort of way to tie them together, whether it be by opening or like tied through the, the drama of the tournament. But I do think that there's a way to make the book sort of more entry level and really help uh, um, newer chess fans appreciate the, the staggering beauty of some of these games. Um, so um, just a bit more before we, um, we move on to a few of the, the other topics, but I also wanted to read a little bit from Nidorf just to give a, give listeners a little flavor of what his uh, writing style is like. Um, so here's the opening paragraph of the Nidorf book, uh, which is, he says, I have long wished to write a chess book and as good intentions are sometimes actually realized, the happy circumstance has just been presented by the great World Championship Candidates Tournament. There exists a general opinion that chess is a very difficult game, but if one looks closely, that difficulty is neither less nor greater than that of many other sports. The difficulty, contrary to general belief, not in not lies not in playing chess but in learning to play well. Um and on he goes and again a lot more annotations um but as you as you mentioned earlier Nate the, you don't get his personality as much as one, one might hope in this book.
2: Yeah it's um it, it, in his in his personal life he had the reputation of being a really colorful character the his his writing's pretty sort of traditional and didactic uh by contrast.
0: Yeah. But again, definitely a better job explaining it, but still uh, some inconsistencies, especially if you just hold the book side by side and the, each game more or less uh, tells a different story. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if we should uh, delve into the individual games at all. I think that, as you said, Nate, that might be a better thing for us to just sort of drop a playlist in the show notes sort of thing. What do you think?
2: yeah i think that i i could sort of put together a list of you know what i think are some of the the highlight games so i feel like that would be has um martin eustison been on this show yes he has i feel like this this would be like a great project for him like the zurich remix like yeah he would would knock that out in like a weekend somehow
0: yeah exactly yeah martin eustison being also known as say chess on twitter shout out to martin um and, yeah, he's working on, uh, I, I don't think it's secret, he said it on Twitter, a uh, uh, Chess Fundamentals remix of uh, Capablanca's classic book. Um, and he, of course, um, was an adult improver on the show who wrote the uh, um, Blindfold Chess Puzzle book. But, yeah, uh, definitely something that someone should should get on. Um, so is it treachery in Zurich time, Nate? What do you think? We've Yeah, we've teased it. Actually, we're going to tease it once yeah. more because I, because <laughs> I want to talk about the 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 ghost writing topic that we also teased and alluded to because I feel like that one's easier. Um, there's there's less like there's less to debate. There's less to be said. Um, and so again, as we mentioned in uh, in Geno book, uh, Smith's Love on the Couch, um, he alluded. To or no, sorry, it was in I believe it was in the of course the rise and fall of David Bronstein, Jenna Sosanko wrote that Bronstein told him that Weinstein and this is in quotes, wrote the entire narrative part um and that Bronstein in turn just did the analysis but it 's a bit confusing to me because some of it some of the narrative part is very sort of first person and personal, mm-hmm. so there' are sentences like like in the book uh Bronstein, air quotes, because now we don't know if it's really Bronstein, saying, nevertheless, I feel bound to admit to the reader that I sacrificed more from intuition than calculation. That was in the game against Max Uwe. Um, Or during the game and afterward, I was unable to shake the feeling that I had a win somewhere. Um, He describes the playing hall at times. um, And of course, Weinstein, uh, and famously as a sort of subplot, was not in switzerland at the time in fact later in the late in the tournament it said that bronstein was a bit preoccupied because uh he was worried that he was being rounded up by kgb um writes about this in uh treachery in zurich um so it's you know it it's said by sasanko that bronstein said he didn't really write it but when you read through the book to me parts of it sound distinctly like bronstein so i think it's fair to say i mean you know, this is fairly reliable as far as I would, I mean, Sasanko in, in the rise and fall of David Bronstein, it's very clear that they were close. Um, so I, I'm not questioning the veracity of what was said. I'm just feeling like maybe it's more of a collaboration. Um, maybe they work together throughout. Cause it didn't feel to me like, like uh, Bronstein just annotated the games and handed it to him. Um, what do you think? Nate? Yeah. It, it seems it seems fairly personal. And I also this this one I find it
2: harder to get worked up about because I feel like when you're in a tournament and it's understood that everyone's playing their games, you know, I feel like it's it's a pretty big deal to like fix matches or throw games. Like that's that's not cool. But right. um as far as um, you know, like ghostwriting, um, I don't know, I don't want to like scandalize anyone, but I think you know, whether, whether in chess or other fields, like famous people generally don't write books or like, yeah. you know, when their names are on books, they might contribute some, but you know, yeah, there's usually, um, someone else doing a lot of the work there. And that's, I think within sort of the writing business, that's, that's pretty standard and it's not really considered, um, you know, back healing or anything like that. It's just kind of the, the way they do the business.
0: Yeah, well said, and and it's not like this was a gripe coming from Weinstein after the fact. This was just that Bronstein subsequently told Sosanko that he gets all this credit for this book, but he felt like Weinstein deserved a lot of the credit. I'm paraphrasing there, but um, and yeah, so I I think that there's there's not much more to be said about that. The other thing is, um, like you say, there's no big historical consequences, and and we'll never know. So that finally does bring us to the the much teased and uh, and hinted at uh, allegations of impropriety, basically um, in the early two thousands in the Russian magazine sixty four Bronstein, and this was subsequently published in some of his his books. uh, Bronstein basically alluded to the um, you know there was like a traveling party of like twenty five Soviets, a couple KGB officers, along with all the seconds and players that we mentioned earlier. Um, and that they were just getting orders and passing on orders. The, the main thing seems to be that they did not want Rashevsky to win the tournament. Um, it seems like that was the the primary order, and everything else kind of flowed from that, because it seems like maybe if it had been someone, another uh, Soviet player other than Smislav winning, that would have been fine too. But because Smislav uh, assumed pole position, sort of the the allegations of uh, what occurred became stronger and stronger. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it seems like the, the basic setup is right. There's,
2: there's a lot of Soviet players in the tournament that the majority of the field actually, and even to my understanding, it it would have been even more. They even sort of relaxed the rules to let in a few more non-Soviet players because they were, they were maybe concerned about, appearances of impropriety um but yeah naturally they wanted a a soviet world championship challenger and then as it shook out it was sort of a race between ryshevsky and um at the end with um bronstein um somewhat close behind and and yeah there's bronstein came out with these sort of revelations that maybe um the Russian delegation was sort of trying to, 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 fix the matches. So I guess that's the, that's the allegation. Um, and yeah,
0: sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no,
2: yeah. So it seems, I mean, uh, I don't I, you know, my, I guess my, my sense having, having read the books, having, having read the articles was like something was going on, but, but it was still pretty, pretty muddy, pretty unclear because in a lot of ways, Ryshevsky collapsed. You know, if, if Ryshevsky had just won his own games, there would have been nothing they really could have done. And of course you could say, you know, he was in a difficult position because maybe people were playing harder against him. Maybe, you know, he wasn't getting as many easy draws. Although even, even in this tournament, like there, there, some of the the Russian players did agree to draws with him in um, inferior positions i would say so um yeah i don't it it wasn't all cut and dried to me from from the games
0: yeah i mean in terms of very specific allegations um uh andy Soltis writing again so the treachery in zurich uh those that's the title of a two-part series that Soltis wrote on chess cafe um it's now chess cafe is now behind a paywall so if you make like a twenty five dollar donation you can read the two part series um because uh bronstein's uh what he actually wrote in sixty four is not so easy to find in English, so for me that was like the best summation and obviously um soltis uh knows of of what he speaks um and Sasanko and Smith's love on the couch note noted that some players were ordered to draw, as Nate said, to conserve energy, um, and others were, quote-unquote, ordered to beat Rushevsky. Um, So, I mean, again, so no allegations that anyone was specifically ordered to lose. Obviously, it would be better if none of this stuff was going on. But, you know, ordering someone to beat a world-class player is, is kind yeah. of silly. Like, that, <laughs> good luck with know, that. That was, that, was, that
2: was part of it that stood out to me, and it's probably characteristic of the era that was it was a mix of sinister and ridiculous at the same time. Cause you know, it's like someone orders you to beat Rashevsky with black and it's like, well, yeah, I'm going to try, but like,
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like,
2: you know, dude, he's one of the best players in the world. Like it's not that easy to beat him with, like, I can't just decide to do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, it seems like there were some, some shady characters around trying to, um, influence the outcome. But, but at times it was kind of Keystone cops. It was, some of Some of the decisions and orders were a little bit ridiculous, but then at the same time, the consequences could be really serious, right? because you know there's they're connected to the k g b so the the consequences for you or your family could be really serious,
0: yeah, um, and to be clear, so Bronstein did write that he was ordered in round thirteen um to beat Rashevsky with black, and somehow he did actually. Now, here's another paragraph just to give listeners a little bit of a feel of uh, what specifically the the allegations were. Uh, Bronstein wrote how Kyrgios, trying to erase Mislav's lead, was motivated by psychological circumstances, that's in quotes, when he had the idea of taking his chances on a sharp and unusual kingside attack using two rooks and no pawns. But according to Bronstein's 64 article, there was a behind-the-scenes struggle well before Kyrgios sat down to play 1c4 the Troika called Keres to the shore of Zurich's lake and tried for three hours to convince him to make a draw with White against Smyslov so that Smyslov could use all his strength against Rashevsky in round 25. second second Toulouse told me of this that very night, Bronstein wrote." So that's um, a paragraph from Soltis's Treachery in Zurich kind of describing what was written. And that's like reasonably damning, I would say. Um, but then, as Andy alluded to in our conversation, uh, Yuri Averbach didn't consider these allegations credible. Now, I found what Andy said about talking to him personally really interesting, but Averbach also uh, gave an interview with, uh, with Taylor Kingston, the translator, chess historian and translator of the Neidorf book, um, where... Uh, he, he said, I do not, he didn't think Bronstein was credible. I have known Bronstein so long. Sometimes for instance, he may speak about his match with Bob Vinnick and he says he did not want to win this match or some such thing. He may not be truthful every time. I cannot say of course, exactly how much, but what he says is not 100% true about anything. Really. That is my experience based on many contacts with him. Let us say he cannot be a hundred percent objective. Uh, this is the point. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating rabbit hole, that's for sure. And I found that
2: once once you get into to primary sources with with any sort of historical event, it seems like it it always raises more questions than answers. Yeah, um, and and this is no exception to that. It's just sort of, you know, probably from 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 our vantage now, you can never completely unravel what really happened.
0: Yeah, and Smislav took the lead uh, late in the tournament and then like drew his last handful of games, some of which were against Soviet players. Uh, the round, I know, round 28 game in in particular, Taimanov had White against Mislav and it's just a very sort of bloodless draw and it didn't really make sense for Taimanov not to push a little bit. And this, when I mentioned earlier that there were vague allusions to, to some sort of impropriety, but nothing um, remotely sort of, or nothing overtly accusatory, I should say. Um, so the Neidorf in that game makes like several allusions to sort of how um, Taimanov just traded all the pieces off. Uh, here, Here's a quote. He says, uh, Taimanov playing white against Smyslov traded every piece he could, one after the other, quickly arriving at a draw. The only comment one can make about this game is that Taimanov was in quite a hurry to make a draw. Has he lost all fighting spirit? And then, so he says that in the middle of a game annotation, and then a few moves later he says, um, (laughs) Taimanov trades off one more piece, a couple moves before the game ends, like short of move 30, and he says, this piece still needs to be traded off, and then it ends in a draw. So, I mean, reading between the lines, it seems like Nidorff, you know, I don't think, especially at that time, no one was going to put allegations in print, but he seems to be kind of rolling his eyes through the page, don't you think, Nate?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, once once you know this, um, know about these allegations, then you kind of bring that to the reading of the book and you're looking for clues in every game. And I would say there's generally not a lot, but but occasionally moments like this, there, you do sort of see like maybe a little bit of a, a, a nod to not every every game was contested to the fullest.
0: Yeah. And I guess, again, the more important question is uh, how this, or does this sort of alter the legacy of this tournament? Um, how would you address that, Nate? What do you think? I guess
2: for me, um, it doesn't too much because in, in line with the Bronstein book, I'm more interested in it as sort of a laboratory of chess ideas and this this occasion where a lot of the great players in the world came together and played all these games in a period of experimentation and when people were were trying and figuring out a lot of new things in chess and I I think the value of that is still there but for people who are more interested in the um tournament as a historical a historical event or or a competition um I guess it does cast a little bit of a pall over it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's, you know, that's why we're talking about it, but at the same time as as Andy again alluded to, like this stuff went on all the time, you know. It just so happens that this is the most such a such a famous tournament and the information about it has only come to light in the past 20 years, like that's why we talk about it, but there were allegations like this in in many other high-level tournaments and again there's no I mean, the only allegations were put forward by Bronstein. Um, and there's no allegations of like an outright thrown game. I mean, a, a game lost on purpose. Um, and some of the games are just so amazing. And I guess you could make the argument that like the last handful of rounds need to be taken with a bit more of a grain of salt. But um, anyway, I mean, as you say, Nate, the the ideas of the games uh, definitely stand the test of time. Um, so I think, I think those are the main points. I mean, I feel like we could wrap up a little bit. Um, and then we have a couple proverbial housekeeping notes, but I mean, in summation, as we've said, amazing tournament, amazing games, it wouldn't be a bad idea. Again, once this list of games, which by the way, I mean, obviously there are greater authorities than Nate and I as well. I mean, Andy Soltis and in his forward mentions probably 10 to 20 of his favorite games. Um, but just, you know, Nate and I did go through the games and just lots of them just stand out. There's just so many. Um, so you can just look for your favorite games on YouTube. I think ChessGames.com already has, uh, a notable, a list of notable games from it. Um, I actually should give them a shout out that, um, you can, uh, as, uh, Christopher Chabri alluded to when, when we recapped, uh, think like a grandmaster if you donate to chessgames.com you can also just download the file of all the games um and again i think it's like uh 20 25 bucks i could be wrong about the amount but i you know they're worthy of support anyway um so there are ways to to look at all the games and then a decent way might be to look for youtube recaps of of all the games cuz you might as well take advantage of uh of modern resources and there's so many great chess YouTubers explaining games. So something like the um, cutoff queen sacrifice or like uh, Max Irvine's, uh was it Rook a seven or Rook a eight? I can't remember, but some crazy defensive game. Um, there's just so many amazing games. Petrosian's Rookie six. Um, the the list goes on. There's just so many classics from this that that listeners can. So do find a way to check out the tournament um especially if you're rated over 1800 or not obsessed with chess improvement um <laughs> and yeah and or wait for um wait for Martin's remix
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely i think i do think at at the end of the day it's it's a great source of sort of the building blocks and the foundations of the ideas that that grandmasters are thinking about when they play now uh so, if you kind of wanna to, wanna to develop that sense of like what are the the key ideas maneuvers games that 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 chess is based on these this is a these are great tournaments and books for that,
0: yeah, and also again, special shout out to the King's Indian if you're like trying to learn the King's Indian, just picking up this book and going through all the games is uh not a bad way to go, and Bronstein's annotations for that are gonna be quite helpful despite uh not being maybe as um numerous as we would like. Um, so bringing it back to sort of the housekeeping, um, it's been uh, over two months since I've done one of these. So not planning on taking that long again, (laughs) I apologize as you guys can gather, uh, this has been an Epic project and, uh, we had some technical difficulties on top of that. Um, so coming next month, uh, well, I hope next month coming next, put it like that. Uh, I am Christoph Selecki, the aforementioned chess explained is, va- has volunteered to do my system with me, so we're going to mm-hmm. tackle another classic. Um, I'm, ex- I'm excited for this one. Yeah, <laughs> I should warn you guys. I feel like in theory, I should have gotten some like huge my system fan because my um, I I read it as a kid and I haven't like read it cover to cover since. But my my bias going in is kind of I would say more extreme than Wizirk in that I feel like there's better versions of it. Like it's great for its time but there's probably like more readable versions of it these days. So, and I, I'm afraid to report that Christoph has the same bias, but. Oh, okay. We'll- Interesting.
2: That, that's what I was wondering. Cause you can put me on the record as well as a, my system hater. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can never make heads or tails of it. I don't think it makes any sense. So. Uh, man, I'll, I'll be I'll be interested to hear what you guys say.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll have to round up another special guest to like make a cameo and stand for my system if we're just gonna <laughs> crap on it because it is a classic book and who am I to freaking criticize Aaron Nimzovich, But you know, we're just trying to help you guys decide is this book worth your time at this time? You know, um, and yeah, the other thing, Barry Katz uh, last two months ago talked me out of making a donation to uh some sort of chess uh organization but no such it won't happen this time so nate uh nate what, what can we do
2: um yeah i think um so so the one i wanted to choose is um well it's actually it's related to someone who's been on the show but um chess and slums is the organization and i know uh, uh toonday has been on the show so um
0: excellent you know they yeah. go
2: yeah they go into um some some poor areas and in Africa, I believe in Nigeria and um, use chess as a means of uh, kind of expanding the horizon of, of the kids there who don't have a lot of opportunities. So if you follow them on on Twitter or Instagram, you, you can see some really amazing uh, videos and stories. So I thought we could do that.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I know. I saw that you made a nice donation to them. Um, that's awesome. And I'm happy to make another one. And any listeners who didn't hear Tunde, I mean, just... Hearing him speak from the heart about like just just teaching kids how to think through chess, not not trying to necessarily discover the next world champion, but just using chess as like a an educational tool. As he's an inspiring guy, and it was a great story. So happy to support them uh, further. Um, Okay, anything else, Nate? Before we finally let you move on with your life after this epic project? (laughs)
2: Uh, No, yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me on. It's been Great. Great to be on uh, nice, nice trip down memory lane going through these books. And uh, yeah, I think uh, for, for people who want to get a little, a little chess history, they are um, still really, really great ones to read.
0: Yeah. And Nate, thank you for, for all the work you put in and, and I'll put in a final plug uh, listeners. You definitely need to subscribe to Zwischenzug um, his Substack, which basically means a uh, blog or mailing list. Um, Nate writes something new every other week, and it's always insightful. Um, I'm always happy to read it and check for him on the How to Chess podcast. Uh, Come in the coming weeks and follow him on Twitter and all of that stuff. Any other uh, social media? How's your TikTok career coming, Nate?
2: <laughs> I haven't launched that one yet. Maybe that'll be my next next project. But yeah. You- find me on twitter and 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 like you said uh um yeah writing writing stuff about chess improvement a little a little data and ai in there but but writing something every other week on there
0: excellent good stuff well thanks again nate and listeners we will catch you in a regular perpetual chess or at the next book recap right. thanks man Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Most of all, to my producer, Matthew Passy. I also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show. Did you guys know that there's still people who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess podcast? There's even chess players who have not heard of the Perpetual Chess podcast. So we need to fix that. And the ways to do that include writing positive reviews on podcast platforms or YouTube comments, Telling friends, all that stuff makes a difference in helping spread the word about the show. But of course, I most of all wanna thank people who provide financial support to the show. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. So without further ado, I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of lasmanchess.com, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services. chess Twitch Channel, Aniti Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, chessmood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, David Shriver, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Farhan Thawar, Barasawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsythe, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, Lucio Casada Silva, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnays Twitch channel, Grandmaster Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden chess club reuven fisher ross crossland seattle chess club shane Unger, stephen kelty steven martinez sven Giersen, thomas stanix thomas tachenko todd bryant of strongchess.com todd kennedy the vintage patsers which is a chess.com improver group wayne bean william hogarth and i also would like to thank ace Vallega, adam ralph of chessengland.com adrian gutierrez al hasings alan and maggie sue Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio K. Leonport, F.M. Andre Terrafa, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Chad Hilton, and Chess Patzer, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I.M. Christoph Selecki, AKA Chess Explained, Coach J. Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskochczyk, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Tennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Pavia, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Letart-Lavoire, Dr. Frank Tortoris Frank Zanonis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Arish Srinivasan, Howard Bihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspenwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Boyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Takumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Joe Dasano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christiansen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kubutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyavsky, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Amolyanovas, a.k.a. Photo Chess, Mark Shaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Tedesco of Seattle Chessmeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobo, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negma Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal, Charbonneau, Passie Passanin, Paul Bleen, Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux. Queenside Management Limited of Switzerland, Randall Temple, Ricky Grahalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert T.T., Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Chess YouTube channel and Publishing Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Kraus, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergey McCagan, Seth Ruzica, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM, Tatev Abrahamian, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edzel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao, Chang of Chess1000.com, and Jivko Storyanov. Thanks to you all for the support, and we will catch you all next week.
3: shall be shall be shall for be Papa.